all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 498. We are so excited today to be tackling a Patreon community requested topic, environmental allergies. Sarah, how long has this been on our docket? Um, I, I mean, I think it's been one of those topics that has always been under consideration because, of course, environmental allergies, seasonal allergies are such a common experience, period, but also such a common experience among like people with other health issues, autoimmune disease, so read a large part of our audience, right? And so it's always been something that we've like, oh yeah, we could do it uh, we could do this show. And it wasn't until our Patreon family said, "Hey, this is this is something we're really interested in learning more about." That we went, "Okay, let's put this on the schedule." And I'm I'm kind of excited to to dive into this because I think it's A, so relevant and B, I think it's it's sort of tangential to so many other topics that we talk about. I think in a way that, you know, listeners, you'll you'll really understand by the time we get to the the end of this episode. Um, but I just I think it's fascinating. So I'm I'm really excited to to cover this this week. I do also want to say that you're going to be sharing some news at the end of this podcast that we want to make sure our listeners stick around for. So even if you have absolutely no interest in environmental allergies, you might want to hang through. Um, although I'm, I promise it'll be worthwhile. Uh, we always, we always deliver. So anything, anything else you want to say on that before we jump into the show? No, uh, okay. hang you'll, on till the end, stick around, stick around. Okay. Big news coming in the meantime. Um, let's just start with actually talking about what environmental allergies are. Like, what does that actually just mean? So an allergic response is an immune response to something that is otherwise harmless. And an environmental allergy is that immune response to something in our surroundings that would otherwise be harmless. Um, allergies are caused by, um, the combination of this immune response that is very specifically mediated by the formation of IgE type antibodies against something that normally would not be a problem for our health. And that creation of IgE antibodies uh, very specifically causes the release of histamine when we are exposed to that thing that we're allergic to. And it's the histamine that's released that is what actually causes the characteristic symptoms of an allergy. So when we're talking about environmental allergies, that can include any or all of the following, runny or stuffy nose, itchy, puffy or watery eyes, sneezing, shortness of breath, headache or sinus pressure, 
itching or dry skin, hives, wheezing, coughing, fatigue. It can cause asthma or um, make asthma worse. Um, and we sometimes will will call these, there's actually diagnoses that can categorize some of these symptoms. So we have allergic rhinitis, which is the hay fever aspect, or allergic conjunctivitis, which are the eye allergies. And if you're somebody who has seasonal allergies, your symptoms often will fluctuate. So there'll be certain times of year where you have, um, where your allergies are, are worse. And what's different from environmental allergies compared to food allergies, right? Food allergies are very specifically a reaction to something that we have ingested, whereas environmental allergies are something that we, the exposure, instead of us consuming the thing, it's literally just coming into contact with that thing in our surroundings, maybe inhaling that thing. The four most common culprits behind environmental allergies are pollen dust, pet dander, and mold. And what's fascinating to me is I think when we think about those those things as the thing I'm allergic to, right? I'm allergic to cats, for example. What's fascinating is the the thing that we're allergic to isn't always the the thing we're thinking about. So dust mites is the the best example of this. So when you have an allergy to dust. It's not typically the actual dust. So dust is basically sloughed off human skin cells that settle and collect together. But then what lives in that are dust mites, which are tiny bugs. Um, and they feed off of the sloughed off skin cells. Um, and then they also like... You're not going to refer to them as our pets? No, because they don't live on us. Oh, or I completely misunderstood. I'm sorry. Dust mites. Dust mites. So dust mites live. You don't want them living on you. Now that I'm saying no. that, I'm like, you don't want them living on I you. mean, they're, uh, yeah. So they're live. They're feeding off of your skin cells after your skin cells have like fallen off of your skin. So we've talked on the show before about how skin kind of regenerates itself. So the bot, the top layers um, will kind of shed and then are replenished by the bottom layers of skin. And that's like the normal cycle for skin. This, that's fine. You're actually going to slough off more skin cells if you have dry skin. And then dust mites are the things that eat the skin cells. Like after. I just envision them in my bed. Like they're not bed bugs. They're, they're but not, but they, they can live in your bed because you're sloughing off skin into your, your bedding and your mattress as well. So um, actually mattresses, curtains, furniture, uh, carpet, like it's not just the visible dust that might accumulate on, you know, furniture, like bookshelves or whatever during whatever the time period is between cleaning. Um, but actually you're going to get dust mites in any place where your skin cells, when they slough off can settle, which is basically like anything, anything, anything with texture, right? Anything with that sort of fabric or carpet piles, that's where you're going to get the most sort of accumulation. And it's actually the allergy that we have to dust is actually the actual bodies of dust mites, their saliva or their feces that are in the dust. So it's they're basically their proteins that are the thing that we're going, if you're allergic to dust, that you'll have an allergic reaction to. 
And often, so dust mites will grow, they need the moisture in the air, so they will, they will thrive uh, during warmer, more humid months. So sometimes you can have dust allergies, and even though dust is kind of around year-round, your symptoms will actually be worse in the spring and summer just because that warmer weather encourages dust mites to make more baby dust mites. All right. Well, I'm going to pretend like, you know, I didn't think that they were just eating the peeling skin on my (laughs) arm. And uh, I mean, I knew that they were in my bed. Um, It's one of the reasons that what like one of the ways that and maybe we'll get to this point um, that if you do have or realize that you have one of these like dust mite allergies is they recommend having a non-fabric type mattress right like that's one of mm-hmm. the things right if you have a um I can't even think of because I'm like it's not a silicone mattress right like <laughs> but it's if you have a material that is not one where they can kind of live in right. so that's where I was thinking they must be on me if they're just hanging out in my bed but anyway moving right along I think the most common one I hear from people like when I hear that people are taking allergy shots for example which we're going to get to where there's no shame, there's no judgment, like we're, we're here to help. But I know for most people, it's for environmental allergies being like pollen, right? Yeah. Like whether, and I'm assuming that also applies to like grass allergies, because I know that's a big one too. Is that also pollen or is that is, entirely yeah. different? Okay. No, it is also pollen. So um, pollen is a reproductive plant part. So when plants... Um, of any plant that flowers and grass flowers, um, and even well-mown grass, some of the shorter grass or weeds in the grass can flower as well. So, uh, trees, flowers, weeds, grasses, when they, um, when they bloom, they release basically pollen, which is these very, very tiny particles into the air that for the plant, those, those pollen grains are going to land on the flower of uh, another plant of the same species and then pollinate that plant, which basically means make little baby plants. So it's making seeds. Um, But for those of us with pollen allergies, um, this is actually like the most common environmental allergy. And it, this can cause a variety of different, again, sort of all the same symptoms, but there's a variety of different seasons, right? So some people will have their pollen allergies be worse in the spring when the trees all start. Some other people will have worse um, allergies maybe in the late summer because that's when the specific weed is blooming. So you can sometimes figure out which pollen you're allergic to based on like if if you're in close proximity to a field, you can go, okay, it's either a weed or the grass in that field that I'm likely allergic to. So proximity can be uh, a clue or also just timing. So often now when you look at the weather, there's also like a pollen count and it will tell you what types of plants um, the poll- like are, uh, pollen- are throwing out a lot of pollen into the air right now. And you can kind of go, oh, look, my, my allergies are really bad and the ragweed pollen counts are super high that's probably a good chance that my pollen allergy symptoms are caused by ragweed pollen. Um, but of course, we'll, we'll talk about allergy testing as well. Then there's pet 
dander, which is also uh, so pet dander is just the animal version of us sloughing off skin cells. So it's not actually when we talk about dander, it's it's not actually their their fur that you know, like if you have a, a animal that sheds, uh, then you will understand that their fur kind of gets everywhere, but it's not necessarily the fur that is causing the reaction. It can be if you have a pet saliva allergy. So most animals groom themselves, uh, with, like by licking themselves, right? So they're getting, they're coating their fur with saliva. So if you're allergic to pet saliva, which is a very common way to be allergic to pets, then the fur that's just lying around the house is going to be a problem. But pet dander is basically the pet contribution to dust. And like dust, it sticks to clothing, furniture, carpets. And um, because it is, again, it's sort of the protein, that's the thing that causes the reaction. And there are, interestingly, some types of pet dander that are more allergenic than others. So for example, cat allergies are more than twice as common as dog allergies, which I find fascinating. And I attribute this to cats being way better at cleaning themselves well, than dogs. That's an interesting thought because I understood that cats specifically have some sort of barbed hair that is part of the problem because my cat's well, cat at this point, um, is a Bengal and they're supposed to be hypoallergenic cats because they have a different kind of coat. Um, like I totally get the pet dander, yeah. dander and saliva element for dogs, but I thought that there was something specific in addition to that that makes cat allergies worse. So interestingly, um, depending on whether or not you're allergic to the, the dander, the coat, right? the or the saliva a hypoallergenic animal is going to make a difference or not make a difference so um i i don't know if there's something about the shape of the hair that's shed or even like animal dander is a tends to be a more sort of jaggedy um has more like jaggedy edges than the cells that we're sloughing off. So they tend to be stickier, um, which means they accumulate faster uh, in various places. So there, there definitely, there are some differences there, but whether or not that there's a difference between cat and dogs in terms of the jaggedness of the dander edges, I do not know. Um, but I do find it really interesting that, I mean, I've tested as allergic to cats and yet I still have cats. Um, so again, you're such a rebel. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> it was a very mild allergy. I think if it was, if it was worse, that might've changed my calculus. Um, but interestingly, right, there's a lot of studies also showing that if you grow up with pets in the house, you have a lower likelihood of having an allergy to pets later in life. Um, so there's definitely an immune tolerance piece of, of this particular, type of allergy, which again, we'll, we'll talk about again when we talk about how allergy shots work. Um, but let's move on to the last of the common, four, four highest common types of environmental allergies, which is mold spores. And mold spores is like the pollen equivalent, but for fungi, which are, are you know, mold is a type of fungus. Um, so again, it's, they're releasing their spores into the air 
in attempt to reproduce. That is the way mold would normally make more baby molds. Um, but they're they're very small. Like so there's some types of pollen that you can actually see. I live <laughs> I live in Georgia, so when the Georgia pines um, release their their pollen, it's a really really large particle, and it's like the air is foggy and yellow. And then when it settles, it'll look like somebody just drew with yellow chalk everywhere. It's crazy how big those those pollen um, grains are. Mold spores you're never going to see. Um, mold loves damp environments, which is why inside you will most commonly find mold in basements and bathrooms. And in that case, your symptoms are more likely to be worse in months with damp weather where just the, the air humidity is higher. But molds can also grow outside. They love, for example, uh, fallen debris, fallen leaves, dying plants. And in that case, mold allergy season typically starts in the hot, humid summer months when mold will grow on sort of patches of brown grass and then continue into the fall and early winter as all those leaves fall and start to, to grow mold. So those are the four most common um, environmental allergies. The fifth, uh, I don't, I just decided we weren't, we were going to just focus on four because the fifth is cockroaches and we're just going to, we're going to. We're going to move right along, right? Um, how is one is okay. All right. I'm assuming it's like what they leave behind. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yep. Let's move along. Yep. <laughs> this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Relationships take work. <laughs> Yes, they do. Especially the most important one you can have in your life, your relationship with yourself. A lot of us will drop anything to go help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? We talked about how important self-care is, like my morning hikes are for well-being, and BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you that you matter just as much as everyone else does, and therapy is a great way to make sure you show up for yourself. Therapy has been life-changing for our whole family. If you haven't had success or even ever tried, let BetterHelp match you. They provide access quickly for clients worldwide. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp Online Therapy. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. You can even read testimonials about their therapist posted daily at betterhelp.com reviews. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the whole view listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash wholeview. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash wholeview. So often environmental allergies are conflated with chemical sensitivity. So I think it's worthwhile talking about how these things are different, how you might tell the difference, but where chemicals can make some, or at least some kinds of chemicals can make allergies worse. So let's 
like talk briefly about chemical sensitivity, even though this is mechanistically quite different from an allergy. And so typically when we're talking about chemical sensitivity, we're talking about something called multiple chemical sensitivity or MCS, which is a condition where the the person who has it has a complex collection of often unspecific symptoms that are triggered by low-level exposure to chemicals. And what's really fascinating is that this has been researched for uh, more than 65 years, and there's still a huge amount of uncertainty regarding the underlying mechanisms behind how this exposure to chemicals that otherwise, you know, would not cause a reaction for most people, how this can cause symptoms. And so the the most, um, the, I mean, there's a variety of different mechanisms that have been postulated, various, uh, you know, mechanisms involving the immune system and pathways similar to allergy, central nervous system, olfactory and respiratory symptoms, metabolic capacity, um, but what's interesting is that the newest science is pointing to anxiety as being a major cause, that there's something about the sensory and olfactory symptom or system in the context of anxiety that the brain is interpreting those that exposure as something dangerous. And it's that pathway that is causing the symptoms. And I want to be clear for any of our listeners who have multiple chemical sensitivity, linking that to anxiety does is not the same thing as saying it's in your head. It's it's just like anxiety is not in your head, right? Anxiety is the, you know, overactivation of the amygdala, the basal ganglia, right? It is uh activating the fight or flight response. There are a whole lot of different, you know, hormones behind the the emotional feeling of anxiety and the perception of danger when there is not actual danger there. So what's happening in multiple chemical sensitivity, at least the the sort of current understanding, is that the symptoms are actually basically the same, very similar types of symptoms to symptoms that you can get from anxiety. Um, and that that is, that is actually the mechanistic link. So symptoms of multiple chemical sensitivity can include any or all of headache, fatigue, dizziness, nausea, congestion, itching, sneezing, sore throat, chest pain, changes in heart rhythm, breathing problems, muscle pain, muscle stiffness, joint aches, skin rash, diarrhea, bloating, gas, confusion, trouble concentrating, memory problems, and mood changes. Um, and so um, those are there's a large amount of overlap between those symptoms and environmental allergy symptoms. So for some people, it can be really challenging to really know, is this a true allergy? Are there IgE antibodies be involved? Or is this a, a chemical sensitive sensitivity? And those chemical sensitivities, the common triggers are things like tobacco smoke, ex um, exhaust fumes from a car, perfume, air fresheners, I mean, scented projects, products in general, insecticides, um, new carpet, right? The sort of VOCs, uh, paint, chlorine, those types of things. Um, so that's like one, that's multiple chemical sensitivity. I think it's also worth noting 
that chemical-induced asthma is very well described, and that's mechanistically very well understood. So if you have asthma related to allergies, then the, the mechanism is an immune mechanism. It's not the same, basically, like line from trigger to symptom as what's happening in multiple chemical sensitivity. But I think the most natural question is, how do I know the difference between multiple chemical sensitivity and environmental allergies if these symptoms can look very similar? If I don't necessarily know if I walked into a room, if it was the air freshener in the room that caused that symptom or the mold smell that that air freshener is trying to cover up and it's a mold allergy, um, or if it's, uh, and you know, there's a dog and right. <laughs> yes. So like, I, I think, um, I think it's really helpful to know that the lines can be very blurry. Um, but the best way to tell the difference is to go see an allergist and get allergy testing. And these would typically be done as a skin prick or, um, test also known as a scratch test. That's the most common, like first tap test that an allergist will do. And in this case, they will, uh, pick, they'll either do your arms usually or your back and they'll draw a little grid and they'll put a drop of each potential allergen that they're testing for 10 to 50 different potential allergens in each grid. And then they'll use a very small needle just to break the skin underneath where like they're literally just scratching it. So that's called a scratch test underneath where that drop of purified antigen is and then they'll monitor that area for typically 15 minutes up to even an hour, depending on how slow you're responding. One of the places will be a positive control, so it'll be just pure histamine to show how your body is responding to that. So you'll get basically a hive um, wherever you have an allergic reaction and the size of that round spot that it's sort of like a welt basically will uh, then be scored as a measure of how allergic you are to that thing. Some people, their immune systems just aren't quite sensitive enough. And in that case, you'll have an intradermal skin test. I had this done when I had allergy testing done um, it, a million years ago. The, the skin prick test was uh, hard to read. So we went to an intradermal um, skin test same same idea. Draw a grid. Um, it it matches right. There's we know exactly what's in each square. And in this case, a needle is being used to put a very small amount of the allergen injected just in right under the skin, like a little tiny blister. And then you can see the reaction. Um, and then there's also other right. There's a patch test which is designed to determine the con um, the cause of eczema. Uh, from contact dermatitis. And then there's also blood tests. So you can get a blood test for even a couple hundred different things, and that's measuring IgE antibodies in your blood. Blood tests have a higher rate of false positives. Skin tests have a higher rate of false negatives. And generally, what your, your allergist will pick which one to do or whether or not to do both based on your symptoms and like what you know, what the the suspected culprits are behind those symptoms. And then if you were going to do, like, if, if it was a drug allergy or a food allergy, then you would do a challenge test, which is very much like the um, elimination and challenge 
protocol as part of reintroductions for the autoimmune protocol. So we, we've kind of covered that in depth actually quite recently on the show. So we don't need to go into that, but that is typically for other types of allergies, not for environmental allergies. And so there's no diagnostic test for multiple chemical sensitivity. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have all these symptoms and all of your allergy tests came back negative. There's other things that might need to be ruled out before diagnosing multiple chemical sensitivity as well, like mast cell activation um, syndrome, which is classified as an auto-inflammatory condition rather than autoimmune. But in this case, mast cells, which are the, the main cells producing histamine in an allergy, are overactive. And this actually, mast cell activation syndrome is its own classification, but we also see it common secondary to chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. Um, and in this case, uh, it's really can be really challenging to identify the exposure because the mast cells are so sensitive, but there are some tests that can be done in order to diagnose this. So typically they're, they're urine tests, um, but there is a blood test. They basically need to be timed to a reaction. So the blood test needs to be drawn uh, like within 30 minutes to two hours of the beginning of a reaction. And the urine tests, typically you would start collecting urine as soon as you have a reaction and you would collect it would be a 24-hour urine sample. So you'd be collecting all urine over a 24-hour period. And then they can look at various metabolites, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, um, something called N-methylhistamine. So they, they can look at these in, in the urine as metabolites. They can look at something called mast cell tryptase in blood to determine that the cause of those symptoms are very specifically these overactive mast cells and mast cell activation syndrome. So again, to diagnose multiple chemical sensitivity, typically you would rule out all possible causes. But again, it's helpful to know that some chemical exposures beyond you know, being well understood to trigger asthma attacks or worsen asthma in general, which overlaps, right? Asthma can be a symptom of allergies, goes along with allergies. Um, and often, right, asthma, it's not just an asthma attack where you're feeling like you can't breathe, but it could be things like clearing your throat a lot, uh, coughing, sort of being phlegmy, that those are all things that we associate with allergies, but are actually mild asthma symptoms. So those can all be triggered by, by chemicals. But there's also right like huge body of scientific literature showing things like air pollution can worsen allergies um, and not all of the mechanisms are identified but for example traffic related air pollution uh, exposure when we're babies causes anywhere between a 40 to an 83 percent increase in uh, allergies by age four. Um, and also an increased risk of food allergies by age eight. So um, studies have shown that just being exposed to you know, pollution is definitely chemicals, but also particulate pollution, that that can increase the likelihood of developing allergies. And then studies have shown repeatedly that cigarette smoke can worsen allergy symptoms in many people. So there, again, there is sort of this kind of 
blurry line between chemical sensitivity and environmental allergies that I think is really worth acknowledging. I think what's interesting to me as someone who has done a lot of research into the chemicals that are included into the group that you mentioned, like the perfume being listed as one thing just made me snark and eye roll, (laughs) right? Because I'm like, perfume is not one chemical. If we're talking about multiple chemical sensitivities, you would need to know what is in the perfume and order to know what is causing irritation. I think a lot of people think, oh, it's the smell. The smell is strong and giving me a headache. But what research I've read that is, you know, plentiful, (laughs) plentiful, is that because there are so many chemicals that make up fragrance, that people are irritated by those things because we know that there are extreme type of chemicals in them that would represent basically an introduction of a VOC into your like personal bubble, right? Like you're, if you're wearing a perfume or if you're walking into a house that has, um, uh, rooms, sense what do they call those things that you know like the the room plugs and the you know and or even just candles right that someone is is um, burning because it has a fragrance it's introducing those chemicals into the air that you're breathing in a much more direct way than let's say off-gassing of your furniture because once your sofa or whatever that has VOCs has been unwrapped from the plastic that it was in the warehouse of after it's kind of what they call settled right after it's kind of like been around for however long a few weeks a couple of months whatever those VOCs have been dissipated Mm -hmm. but if you're spraying perfume or using uh you know a home plug-in or whatever it is that's repeated frequent strong introduction that's basically like bringing a new sofa in every day so it's it's super interesting to me and not surprising at all that the diagnosis for that is kind of like, well, we're going to rule everything else out and then we're going to say that's a problem. I'm like, yeah, you know why it's a problem? Because those things are really irritating. And that person's body is just saying like, whoa, this is I, I'm interpreting this as toxic. That's my personal that's my personal opinion. And it would also make sense in the context of air pollution, because we've talked before on the show about how even if your neighbor is using a laundry detergent that has fragrance in it, that the science has shown that it registers as an air pollutant, mm-hmm. right? And so it's like the more people you're around, in addition to the natural pollution from you know wildfires or cars or whatever it might be, you're also introducing kind of like if you lived in a city from an industrial facility, if you live, let's say, in a neighborhood with like townhouses and everybody's doing their laundry every day or every other day, that's another introduction of even more chemicals that Americans aren't registering as a problem, right? Like Europe is doing a much better job of some of that. But here it's just it's people can use anything they want in under the umbrella of fragrance. And so we don't even know what we're testing. (laughs) 
man talking. I'm going to leave that in because now you know how like violent and passionate I am about this that I just like but hit my sounded straw. sounded like you were shaking, you were stirring ice cubes in a glass. It's a metal it's... straw in a glass cup. Okay. Um, it's just, it's quite early in the morning for ice yes, cubes. Yes, yes, it I'm is. <laughs> I always use a straw when I'm podcasting because the mic, you know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. makes sense. Anyway, um... <laughs> And it's now you know it's a reusable straw, so pat on the back for me. Anyway, pan talking, passionate. It doesn't surprise me at all that we can't diagnose because we don't even know what chemicals were identified. You know what I mean? The yeah. fact that and like, there's hundreds, if not thousands, yes. of possible culprits, and then you have to identify how you get from point A to point B biologically. So again, like I, I want to emphasize that just because the mechanisms of multiple chemical sensitivity are not very, I mean, they just haven't been identified. There's been lots of postulated mechanisms and very little science that, that really conclusively points to how the symptoms are triggered by the exposure. Other than, right, we do have good science showing that air pollution increases allergic responses that you already have, and chemicals can trigger asthma attacks very, very clearly. And we can think in those in those cases of a, um, you know, of of piling exposures on top of each other, right? So if you are if you have allergy-induced asthma, and it's a pollen allergy, and it is the season for the, the pollen that you are allergic to, and then you go walk into a department store and walk past the perfume counters that just have that like incredible, uh, strong, all of the chemicals in the air, right? It's, it's, a, it's a trigger for your immune system on top of a trigger for your immune system on top of a trigger for your immune system, right? On top of, right, the, the vagus... Um, biggest nerve aspect of what's causing the the bronchoconstriction in asthma, right? So all of those things layering on top of each other, that's that's magnifying symptoms uh, upon magnifying symptoms, right? So um so again, you know, I want to I want to differentiate between chemical sensitivity and the mechanisms of those symptoms versus environmental allergies being very simply, honestly, kind of IgE driven and histamine release. Um, and I want to differentiate between those things and then acknowledge where they kind of feed into each other. Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, an easy way to make sure you're never without quality protein for meals. Subscribe. I have loved ButcherBox for years, and I love that we're able to offer such a great deal for you listeners. Get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. I love the convenience of their humane and sustainably raised meat, shipped for free, frozen for freshness. It helps me save time for other things I want to prioritize in my life. Agreed. And no guilt about it because ButcherBox is a certified B Corp that does right by the people and the planet. They pack fresh and shipped frozen for convenience in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box that is delivered right to your door when you need it so you can save time on your next grocery store trip. I love that we're able to adjust the delivery frequency both up and down as needed, always with free shipping because um, some of us have literal calendar reminders to thaw meat or else we are unprepared for dinner. 
That's me. (laughs) (laughs) And I literally don't know what we'd do without it. It's all super simple on their site with a variety of boxes to choose from, including a custom box, which is what we do. They source meat and seafood from partners with the highest quality for standard. That means higher levels of important nutrients. For example, the conjugated linoleic acid content of grass-fed beef is up to 500% higher than grain-fed. And it has more omega-3 fatty acids, vitamin A, vitamin E, B vitamins, calcium, magnesium, and potassium. Plus, it tastes great. Almost all the meat and seafood our family eats comes from ButcherBox. Indeed. You can be assured the beef is grass-fed and finished, chicken is free-range organic, and seafood is wild-caught. No antibiotics or added hormones. They're focused on quality, both for you, the animal, and the planet. This is your chance to never have to shop for ground beef again. That's right, ButcherBox is giving new members free ground beef for life. Sign up at butcherbox.com wholeview and get two pounds of ground beef free in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com slash whole view to claim this deal. Now that we've laid out all the bad, <laughs> what are some of the positive things that maybe we can do to A, reduce our exposure and B, manage um, what is very common for people, right? I, I don't think I heard you mention, but I know that environmental allergies, both yeah. from a perspective of, you know, all the different things we've talked about are, are very common. Yeah. 30 to 40% of people. Yeah. I, I mean, huge, yeah. huge to have some type. I mean, that's the whole spectrum from, um, you know, I can't leave my house during pollen season to, um, oh, I think I get a little bit of a runny nose when I'm cuddling with a cat at my face, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's the full spectrum from, from very mild to, to incredibly severe. Um, so let's start with talking about, um, I think what's simultaneously the simplest thing and the hardest thing to do, which is reducing exposure. And that's what makes environmental allergies so challenging is it's not just like, oh, I'm allergic to peanuts. I will not eat peanuts, right? It's, um, it's floating in the air and you don't have control over exposure the same way that you that you do with food. And that's not right. We can kind of maybe make more of a direct line to accidental, right? There's trace amounts of peanuts in this food, right? It was not made in a peanut-free facility. Or uh, I'm so sensitive to peanuts that actually the small amount of antigen that's airborne of another kid in the classroom is eating peanut butter is going to cause a reaction. We can kind of draw that line a little bit better to, to environmental allergies. But the, the tricks for reducing exposure um, are, I mean, all of these things have, have, are, are fairly straightforward. It's what any allergist would, would tell you. But one of the things that I think is sort of a, a new option that we have is wearing masks outdoors during pollen season um, because we all have masks now. It's something that, um, you know, I, I have a friend who, who um, pre-pandemic had to wear a mask because she had uh, MCAS, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, and wearing an N95, which was part of her daily life prior to the pandemic, um, and it was something that had never occurred to me, despite having pollen allergies, of wearing a mask when the pine trees are blooming and they're so crazy. 
Um, but now it's something that I, I think is uh, actually a really viable option is to wear, uh, it doesn't need to be those N95s. It can be just a, a straight procedure mask, surgical mask, because pollen is a much bigger particle than viruses. Um, but wearing a mask, if you're outdoors mowing the lawn or going for a walk or a hike uh, during the pollen season of the thing that you're allergic to, I think that's a really good option. Um, other more straightforward uh, ideas that have been around for a really long time is showering once you come inside to remove the allergens from your body, making sure to wash your hair because pollen can really like loves to stick to hair. Um, washing clothing after digging or being in the yard or raking leaves. Um, all of that can help to remove it from your body because pollen will stick to all your clothes. Um, but it can also stop you from tracking pollen or mold spores into your home. I'm thinking about all the times that I made Matt cut down a Christmas tree and he has a pine allergy. <laughs> Like, oh. And like, we, I would always just be like, just wear gloves when you're putting it up on the car. And now I'm thinking about like, all of the pollen that was in the air. We're like, literally under the tree, cutting it down mm -hmm. all over his clothes. And he would, we'd get home and he'd like be trying to wash his hands and arms and it would not, I mean, okay. Yeah. Better than nothing. But like, it didn't help the poor guy. I'm sorry, Matt. I love you. Um, we have teenagers now. I'll make them do all the Christmas tree yeah. stuff. <laughs> give give the saw to a child. <laughs> Wait a minute. If Cole can drive a car, he can operate a handsaw. Okay. Yes, I believe that logic does follow. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's Cole's job from now on. Um, other things using air purifiers indoors, HEPA or greater, really great at removing mold spores, pollen from from the air. Um, especially considering, um, allergies to dust cleaning regularly. I realize that's a really simple statement to make and a really hard thing to actually take action on. Um, but while you're cleaning, like wear that mask when you're dusting, um, also note that, uh, a damp cloth will still, um, trap dust better without blowing more into the air than even the fanciest of those like static cloths that will trap dust. So that's another helpful trick. Um, in the absence of fancy silicone mattresses, a allergen proof mattress cover and pillowcases or um, pillow covers that go under your pillowcase can be really, really helpful for preventing those dust mites from getting into your mattress and then whatever's in there preventing you from getting exposed. And then things like washing sheets weekly and then vacuuming the, the mattress in between when you're washing the sheets can be really, really helpful. Um, and, uh, and also helpful for pet, pet dander allergies as, as well. And then if you have a pet that you are allergic to, bathing your pet regularly will help. Uh, vacuuming, flooring, and furniture on a regular basis will help. Again, changing your bedding, washing your bed, vacuuming your mattress. Um, try to keep your pet off the furniture. I realize I I don't have control over this in my home. So again, um, this is this is about a list of ideas. Recognizing that many of these are not practical at all, depending on 
the, the specifics of your situation. Um, but also another option is to consider getting rid of carpet. If you can't, um, try to at least vacuum carpet and rugs, uh, weekly, um, in order to keep the accumulation of pet dander to a minimum and to prevent the growth of mold. I mean, ventilation is amazing. So that means like bathroom exhaust fans, using those while showering or opening a window. If you, if you have a bathroom with a window and not an exhaust fan, you can also look at things like dehumidifiers. So any area of your house, this is really useful for like a basement, especially in really humid summer areas like Atlanta, where I live. Um, so having a, a dehumidifier in those areas, especially anywhere that smells kind of musty, um, think about where you might have sources of excess moisture, like leaky pipes or uh, shingles that need to be fixed on the roof. Um, keeping gutters and other drainage areas clean around the house can be really helpful for keeping um, keeping mold at bay. Um, and then other things like whether we're talking about nut, uh, dust or dander, um, think about not just like removing carpets, but where you might have other fabric that may be collecting. So things like curtains, blinds rather than, than curtains would, would be gen generally better for, they're easier to clean. Not that they're easy to clean, they're easier to clean. The dust won't accumulate in them quite as much. So all of those, all of those things are all about reducing exposure and don't let perfection be the enemy of the good, because I don't think it's practical for most of us to be able to do even half of all of those things, but they were all worth mentioning. Good points. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people, like changing out their mattress and pillows for a different type and you know, completely putting hardwoods in their home is, as you said, not really a yeah. realistic option. I will say just, um, I know one of the things that we're gonna kind of go in depth in the future I have on my list is, um, the complications with mold. So I know we kind of like lightly touched on it here from an environmental allergies perspective, but I'm glad that, you know, I want to reiterate that mold is not something that you want to mess with yourself because oftentimes um you don't if you see mold it's it's like one of those things like if you see one mouse there's usually a, a lot more <laughs> right yeah. like if you see or smell mold usually it's a much bigger problem and a professional really needs to be handling that because there are toxic implications, right? Like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're talking about mold allergy, not mold yeah. toxicity. Mold toxicity is the allergy times a billion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, definitely a, a topic for the future. But um, yes. Yeah, so also with mold, if it's a real issue, if it's not just like a little bit, a little patch in the bathroom and all you need to do is like change some behavior and clean it with bleach is a really good thing. To, I mean, bleach is not a good thing, but bleach is a good thing to clean mold with, um, because it, it does kill it and it, and will get into the, it'll get into the little crannies and the paint where the mold is growing in the bathroom, for example. But if it's a big problem, definitely hire a professional. Um, and there's also, I think it's worth mentioning that there, if you're in a rental, that there are, uh, laws governing things like mold and lead paint. Um, so you're, 
your uh, landlord is responsible for making sure that you are not exposed to toxins in your rental property. So, um, so also and cockroaches and cockroaches. Yeah. We keep coming back to that, even though we decided to skip over them. You said it's top five. We need to tell people mm-hmm. that they're entitled to have their landlord remove that for them. Yes. <laughs> I didn't know you were anti, you were like so anti bug. Uh, no, I love bugs in general. Cockroaches specifically, however, I live in an area where they are very large Mm. and abundant, and I do not appreciate them. Okay, maybe we should move on to a topic I know you really love talking about. Let's let's do it. How about we discuss nutrients to help support reducing allergic reactions? And I'm going to I'm just going to say here. That we have some personal experience with this, and I'm excited to dig in. Uh, I am too. I think this is a very underrated aspect of allergy management, which is to address nutrient deficiencies very specifically. Um, But we're going to talk about nutrients that have been shown to help reduce either histamine release from mast cells or specifically reduce incidence of asthma and allergy symptoms. Um, the, the, the most obvious is vitamin D because being deficient in vitamin D increases the risk of asthma and allergy. There have been a variety of studies um, that show right low vitamin D levels in children, predicts allergy and asthma uh, development as they age. Um, one study... Uh, out of Canada showed that vitamin D levels lower than 20 nanograms per mil, those people had 50% higher likelihood of having asthma than people with like still low vitamin D, but just between 20 and 30 nanograms per mil. So like super low versus still low. Um, And other studies have shown right. The supplementing with vitamin D reduces asthma symptoms. Um, Again, asthma and allergies being very, very strongly linked. So with vitamin D, of course, it's important to test, don't guess, and then uh, whatever supplement dose your healthcare professional recommends, make sure to retest in about three months to make sure you are both taking enough vitamin D to bring your levels up to a good range, which would be 50 to 70 nanograms per milliliter is sort of the functional range, kind of optimal. So you want to make sure you're taking enough vitamin D to get your levels up there and that you're not overdoing it because uh, levels above about 150 nanograms per milliliter are toxic levels of vitamin D. So you also, vitamin D, happy medium is great. Um, So we talked about vitamin D in episode 354, including testing, at-home testing options. So definitely go listen to that episode if you haven't in a while or Never, never made it around episode 354 uh, for all of our listeners who have found us since then. Uh, so vitamin D is kind of like the, the most obvious, but vitamin E is probably the most compelling. And in this case, it's not necessarily vitamin E in doses that we would normally get from food. So the the recommended daily intake for vitamin E is 15 milligrams per day. Um, So that is what meets our nutritional requirements for vitamin E. But studies that have looked at vitamin E and 
histamine release from mast cells. So this is relevant to allergies, but also things like histamine intolerance, mast cell activation syndrome, have shown high-dose vitamin E. So typically in the um, in this case, sort of 400 IU to 1000 IU range, uh, depending on which form of vitamin E we're talking about, the, the conversion is um, uh, like, for, for talking about natural alpha tocopherol, 1000 milligrams of vitamin E is equivalent to 1500 IU. So we're talking about then basically like 300 milligrams to like 750 milligrams of vitamin E range. So way, way higher than the RDI. Like let's really, that's high dose vitamin E has been shown to help reduce inflammation, uh, improve allergy symptoms. The mechanisms are very well understood in terms of like the cells, the um, cytokines that are being produced. Um, all of these things are being inhibited by, by vitamin E. So vitamin E is very, very good at reducing the histamine release from activated mast cells. But I will caution, please talk to your healthcare provider before taking vitamin E. Don't just go do it. And that's because there are some contraindications for taking high-dose vitamin E, especially if you have a history of heart disease or diabetes. You definitely do not want to be taking in the higher, you want to stay below about 400 IU a day. You don't want to be taking in the thousands. That's not, that's not going to be cool. There are some other conditions that would indicate a lower dose of vitamin E as well. So this is not a thing to self-administer. Uh, definitely talk to a healthcare provider before taking high-dose vitamin E supplementation. Um, but the science is really compelling showing that it can help. And I actually found personally, after talking with my doctor about it last year, I was having a lot of, I, I was having an unusually bad seasonal allergy um, season. And I checked with my doctor that he was okay with me trying some vitamin E for it. And it actually allowed me to stop taking antihistamines. It was that it was it it made that big of a difference so it can be amazing but there are contraindications so definitely check with a doctor this ad is sponsored by bombas their mission is simple make the most comfortable clothes ever and match every item sold with an equal item donated so when you buy bombas you are also giving to someone in need Sarah, I have a long story. And a pun. I realized why Bombas are named accordingly. Why? Because they are the bomb. <laughs> yep. Okay. So I used our code to buy myself more after you were really enthusiastic last time because I'd originally been a kind wife. I know. We're all surprised, right? But Matt is on his feet so much at work, in the rain, etc. I wanted him to really have and test the Bomba socks. And spoiler alert, he highly recommends the quarter size performance socks, which I've never seen before and he loves. Anyway, I thought the no slip socks would be my favorite because they're the first no slip socks that actually don't slip ever. But I ended up getting myself more socks when I placed the other order and I had huge blisters on my feet from running in leather shoes without socks, which is uh, a 
long, embarrassing story <laughs> we don't really need to get into. But I literally couldn't even walk on my carpet at home. I put on the all-purpose ankle socks. I'm not kidding. They're like walking on clouds. I don't understand what is happening. I was able to comfortably walk once I put on those socks. Like, seriously? What? How? How? And why is this possible? I mean, I'm completely not surprised because <laughs> Bomba socks are magic, completely magic. They're made from super soft materials like merino wool, pima cotton, and even cashmere, which makes them perfect and moisture wicking. And they've designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be soft, seamless, tagless, and have a luxuriously cozy feel. And they do good for the world. So far, Bombas customers have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters, and Bombas donates one for every item you buy. I was surprised to see how many things they make beyond socks. And as I have already used our discount code to replace all of my family's socks, <laughs> next step is to try out all their other items too. Go to bombas.com slash wholeview and get 20% off any purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash wholeview for 20% off. Bombas.com slash wholeview. I think the question that I would have, so I know you said this is like a really high dose of vitamin E. And I mean, I'm looking at the list of foods that are high in vitamin E. And these are things that we're already consuming regularly. Yeah. How how often is vitamin E a nutrient that people are deficient in? Like, I know vitamin D is very common. What about vitamin E? And really what I know we're not doctors, we cannot give medical advice. So please don't take this this way. But it seems to me like the only way that you could get to that high level is then by taking supplements. So I, I would definitely be talking to a doctor if I was having allergies. And this was something that I was trying to supplement for to get their recommendation. But I'm just want to make sure I'm understanding properly. Yeah, so the, the foods that are highest in vitamin E, as you said, are foods that we are consuming in abundance typically on our Nutrivor diet. So things like avocado, nuts, seeds, seafood, um, those are all of the, the sort of most common. And like things like olives, olive oil, um, it's... Uh, it's pretty easy to get. And yet, the data actually shows that 86% of Americans do not regularly meet the recommended daily allowance of vitamin E. It's one of the most common uh, shortfalls in the average American diet. So um, it's very common to be not getting enough. Um, and I don't think it is possible if you were going to say, I'm going to get, I'm going to do these high dose vitamin E and I'm going to do it all from nuts and seeds and avocados. I don't think it's possible to, to hit the type of the type of doses that you would get from a supplement for something like histamine issues. So, um, you know, hitting 15 milligrams per day is pretty straightforward. Hitting 300, right, which is 20 times higher than that 
is not. Um, and that would be on the lower end of the range of high dose vitamin E. So this is, this is a case where supplementation, uh, can be, you know, therapeutic for this, you know, this class of, of health issues related to histamine. And I want to, again, emphasize under medical supervision with your doctors. Okay. (laughs) And, um, and making sure that your doctor is aware of this because of the contraindications. So, um, so yeah, I mean, vitamin E is, is, um, is generally if we have a health focused diet, even just sort of like leaning towards a Mediterranean style diet, we're likely eating enough vitamin E to meet the recommended daily allowance, but nowhere near the the levels that have been shown to be therapeutically beneficial in studies. Okay. Do we want to move on to the next thing? Yeah. Um, there are a few other nutrients that have been shown to be, um, it's not so much that you would want to supplement. It's that you want to make sure you're getting enough. So when we're deficient, that can magnify allergy symptoms. It can magnify the histamine response. So this includes a long chain omega-3 fats as we're getting from fish, uh, and which we talked about at length in episode 415. It includes vitamin B6, vitamin C, and zinc, uh, all really important immune health nutrients also, which makes a lot of sense when we're talking about an allergic response, since that is driven by the immune system. And there's also um, a very close link between, I mean, immune health in general, but allergies specifically, and the gut microbiome. There have been studies that show that taking probiotics can improve seasonal allergy symptoms, um, even like placebo-controlled studies. There have been a variety of studies showing that increasing fiber intake can improve allergies, and that's actually related to the metabolites of our gut bacteria. So they produce these things called short chain fatty acids that are beneficial in lots of different ways for us. Um, so we're also getting short chain fatty acids from fermented foods. So we're getting those in sauerkraut, kombucha, kefir, yogurt, right? Those types of foods as well are very high in short chain fatty acids because the bacteria have already been making them before you eat them. So, uh, short chain fatty acids in general have been shown to, um, reduce allergy symptoms. And again, this is all of the different mechanisms, what's happening to the cytokines and the cell activation. uh, All of that has been very, very well documented in the scientific literature. And then I think it's also helpful to talk about diet-wise what to avoid. So high-fat diets are associated with increased allergy, both food allergy and environmental allergy. And this has to do with how high-fat diets uh, increase intestinal permeability and skew the gut microbiome unfavorably. Um, It's also linked to increased histamine release by inflammatory cells in the gut. Uh, It also increases the risk for allergic rhinitis. So there's a variety of studies showing that high-fat diets actually increase allergy. Um, And again, most you know, when these diets are being studied, they're being studied in the context typically of a Western style diet. So it's simultaneously high fat and low in fiber, which is kind of like the worst possible situation for creating a gut microbiome that is going to be unhealthy. And therefore the way that it's impacting our health is in a way that increases our risk for, I mean, in this case, not just asthma and allergies, but all kinds of other health issues. I'm shocked to hear you say that probiotics and 
fiber are things that you recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I do want to talk about, because we've mentioned we're not doctors, we're not giving medical diagnoses, but there is medicine to help people. Mm -hmm. And one of the messages that we try to say loud and clear in the show is there is no shame in needing modern medicine, especially if you're making efforts of any kind to um, mitigate some of these problems. But regardless of what changes you're making lifestyle-wise, everybody deserves health and wellness. And if you're struggling from any sort of allergies and you don't feel good, by all means, we are here to tell you, please get medical help. It exists. Mm -hmm. And we have plenty of interventions that can reduce the effects from allergies. Um, (laughs) One of the ones I know of really well, because Finn used to be severely allergic to dogs. Um, And now that I'm thinking, like now that you went through everything that you discussed earlier, um, I'm like, oh, yep, this, 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 because it was in my mom's home and she had two very large dogs who were very slobbery. Like I always Mm. thought it was because they were kind of longer haired, but like once you start talking about it, I was like, Oh no, these dogs were the like St. Bernard, right? Like we're talking like, yeah, like like just tennis, tennis, two strings. Oh yeah, exactly. Just everywhere. Um, and I'm like, and also giant, giant dogs. giant. Yes, exactly. So there was so much of it, right? Like no matter how much my mom tried to, clean up or how frequently like it and they were on the furniture right like it just anyway so I know over-the-counter antihistamines because (laughs) I was giving them to Finn you know like um baby Benadryl type things because he would get a fever when we went to her house it was so Mm -hmm. bad um but there's also more prescription type ones um or the things that you can take every day versus like a Benadryl that'll knock you out that reduce it as well. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So let's, I think uh, one of the common questions that I get when I teach the AIP lecture series is, is this medication okay for me to take? Is this OTC medication okay for me to take? Uh, is it going to impact my gut health? And that's because We talk in that course, and we've talked on the podcast before, about how, for example, the NSAID class of medications can increase intestinal permeability. And um, and again, that there's a time and a place for them. Um, You know, we talked about this recently on our our show about um, natural pain management strategies. But... um, But because of that and because a lot of the disease-modifying drugs that are used for autoimmune disease having negative impacts on gut health as well, the question I get all the time in the class is, can I take this? Can I take this? Can I take this? Uh, To which the response is, I'm not a medical professional. Please talk to your doctor. But in this broader uh, discussion, when we're talking about allergies, I think it's a natural question to ask. We're like, is it okay to take an antihistamine? Is this going to hurt my health in any way? So I think it's really helpful to know that there are not concerns, um, especially with the the sort of second generation of antihistamines, the sort of non-drowsy ones like uh, citrazine, which is uh, Zyrtec or uh, Reactin if you're in Canada, 
or loratadine, which is Claritin, um, they're, they're not having, I mean, they, they have a negligible impact on the gut microbiome. There's no concern with intestinal permeability. And actually, uh, what's cool about the, the sort of second generation ones is that they don't cross the blood brain barrier. So the first generation antihistamines, uh, think, you know, Benadryl or Dramamine actually is a, is a, also in the same chemical class, um, they cross the blood-brain barrier and have an anticholinergic effect in the brain, which causes drowsiness because histamine is actually a neurotransmitter. So, um, so those ones obviously can be there. There are time and a place for them as well, but especially when we're talking about you know this this class of um, second generation. Basically, if it says it's an antihistamine and says that it's non-drowsy, you're almost certainly talking about a second generation over-the-counter or prescription uh, antihistamine that only blocks the uh, histamine 1 receptor. Um, molecules that are related that block the histamine 2 receptor are actually used for acid reflux. Um, so histamine 2 receptor blockers uh, are are things like Nexium. <laughs> that, that's a, it's a whole different chemical class. It's very, I, I think it's fascinating how, how histamine is something that we blame for allergies, but it actually has a lot of normal roles in human health as well. Again, it's a neurotransmitter. So we're talking about things like Zyrtec, Claritin, uh, or Reactin, Allegra. Um, these are the types of, of antihistamines that don't have a serious adverse effects reported. Uh, tolerance is generally not a problem. Incredibly rarely, they can cause something called acute self-limited liver injury. Um, so that's a, a type of liver injury that would stop as soon as you stop taking the medication. If you had any types of symptoms like that, like yellowing um, whites of your eyes, get thee to a doctor. Um, occasionally antihistamines can worsen urinary retention or narrow angle glaucoma. Um, but generally they are very safe. No, you know, serious side effects have been reported. The sedating antihistamines like Benadryl, um, may cause some, some other issues like urinary retention, constipation, dry mouth, increased appetite. Uh, they can worsen narrow angle glaucoma as well. Um, so that's through their active actions as anticholinergics. But, um, but generally those, those non-drowsy ones, I, I will tell you that if I'm having seasonal allergy symptoms, I take a, an antihistamine and I do not feel in any way like that is a problem. Um, they're very, you know, they're very safe medications. And, uh, and I, I think if I can give, if I can, if I can achieve one thing with this entire podcast, it's to let our listeners know that they don't need to feel guilty about taking an antihistamine for their environmental allergies. What about allergy shots? How does that work? Yeah, allergy shots. Uh, so they're also called um, allergy vaccines, which is really fascinating, um, or allergy uh, or allergen immunotherapy. So these are really fascinating because the idea behind this is to inject a very, very small amount of the thing you're allergic to. And it's a typically like a three-year process of these sort of regular injections to build up 
immune tolerance. So the idea is basically that you're teaching the immune system to not overreact to this allergen. Um, and then it's actually they're very effective if they're if they're done properly, right? So if they're the full, you know, two, three year uh, course of all of the allergy shots are done. And how effective they are varies depending on exactly how you measure it. Are you measuring a reduction in symptoms, which is how most of most of the time they're measured, right? So uh, if you get stung, if you have a bee uh, sting allergy, do you go into anaphylactic shock or do you just have like a manageable allergic reaction where taking an antihistamine will suffice, right? So that would be an incredible like success. So measuring that reduction in symptoms is typically how it's measured. Um, and allergy shots are the most effective for sting allergies. They're up to 90% effective though at reducing symptoms and allowing for the discontinuation of regular allergy medication. So, um, so allergy shots, like they do have a, a really impressive, success rate. Again, they are a two to three year long process. So it takes a long time. It's not like your allergies will stop after that first shot. They usually improve during the first year of, of treatment, but most of the noticeable improvement will occur in the second year. And then usually by the third year, you know, people are desensitized to the allergens and they, they no longer have a, a significant allergic reaction to those substances. But this is something that you would talk to your allergist about, discuss whether or not it's appropriate for you. I think it is helpful for our autoimmune audience to know that they can contain aluminum-based adjuvants, which of course we discussed in our very, very first uh, COVID-19 vaccine show about how aluminum-based adjuvants can cause a transient increase in autoimmune symptoms because it kind of non-specifically ramps up the whole immune system. But not all allergy shots do. So again, that's a conversation that you can have with your allergist about whether or not they recommend this specific treatment for you, uh, you know, whether or not you can commit to the full three-year program for these shots, and then whether or not a, an option without the aluminum-based adjuvants can be selected and whether or not that's, uh, the science shows that's effective for your specific, uh, sim like thing that you're allergic for. So, um, so they, they're, a, I think a really viable option. They basically, um, help to, to tell the immune system that this is not something to have such a crazy reaction to by very, very slowly, you're basically building up like you're building up a tolerance to it, literally called immune tolerance. Um, but you're, you're, you're slowly exposing the immune system so that it can figure out to regulate itself, uh, with that, that exposure. So they're, I think they're a, a really legit option. They're typically reserved for really severe, um, allergies or allergies that require like year round antihistamines. Cause then, then the idea is then you can get off of taking those antihistamines day in and day out. Well, thank you so much for this informative and comprehensive look at environmental allergies as requested by our Patreon community. I know our patrons are already aware of the announcement that you're going to make. And, um, 
I, I just want to give you a second to take a deep breath because I know how difficult this is for you. But I also, if you haven't seen it, want to let you know that there's a flood of messages over on Patreon of people who've already heard this announcement in full support of this announcement. And I'm sure our listeners here will feel the same way. Um, so I'm going to do the exact same thing that I did over on Patreon because I have some bittersweet news. So I'm going to read this announcement that I wrote um, in the hope that it will help me not completely fall apart as I tell all of you, dear listeners, that our upcoming episode 500 will be my last on the Whole View podcast. I have loved creating this podcast with Stacy and Matt and our teams for the last nearly 10 years. And I love what I've learned along the way, the amazing connection that this podcast has created with our listeners, the community that that has built, and most of all, my favorite few hours of the entire week when I get to hang out with Stacy. So realizing that it is time for me to move on was really tough. And I say realization because this never felt like a decision. Over this last year and a half of building Nutrivore, I've been able to apply everything I've learned in the last decade to my vision for not just this website, but all of the resources that will eventually accompany it, which is huge in scope and impact. And what I realized is that in order for Nutrivore to achieve its potential to have the impact on public health that it has the capacity to, I need to spend the next few years dedicating 100% of my energy towards it. The cost, therefore, is having to step back from this podcast, but please know that I do so with grief. Grief, but also pride. I'm so proud of the resource that Stacey and I have created together, of the lives it has touched, the difference we have made, and the conversation that we have led. And I feel good moving on, knowing that this resource will continue to exist for all of you, and in the knowledge that Stacy has amazing plans to continue creating a fantastic resource for all of you moving forward, and I know you are in great hands. I will miss you all terribly, but I will be back to visit as a guest host on The Whole View from time to time, and I know that every listener who has seen their health improve because of the information we have communicated on this podcast, or who has been able to get a friend or family member to take their first health journey steps because of being able to share a crucial episode, I know that you all, better than anyone, understand the value of me dedicating my energy now to having an even bigger impact on even more people. And I hope you'll be able to keep up with me as I build Nutrivore by joining my newsletter. I send a brief recap of what's new and noteworthy every Sunday, and on Wednesdays, I deep dive answer a subscriber question, and you can sign up at thepaleomom.com join. And I also continue to hope we get to meet in person one day when the world goes back to normal and I return to travel and events. Podcast listeners will always be my favorite people to meet. Thank you for those words. I know how difficult they were. I also just want to give a collective thank you from our listeners for all that you've put into the podcast over these 500 episodes. Listeners might not realize, but it's a multi-day process for the research and then coming up with the notes. Um, Like our notes are always over 10 pages. Um, And then actually recording not just the show, but also, you know, we do ads and then we also do Patreon and it consumes a significant chunk of your time. And as we are all wanting to walk the walk of the talk that we 
talk, um, knowing that you're pulling away from something that you love and enjoy and are proud of in order to do the thing that you see as having a vision of significant impact and for your own work-life balance is extremely difficult, but we're all seeing that in our own lives, I hope, as an example of what we ask people to do here on the show. And um, I, I'm very proud of you. And I know, I mean, I'm sad to not get to connect with you every week as well. Um, And I'm nervous to do it all on my own, if I'm being honest. But I'm super excited because I do have a vision. And um, listeners know that it won't just be me pretending to be confused about things like dust mites. (laughs) (laughs) We will have um, lots of experts here on the show. So I mentioned that mold is something that's on the docket in the future. And that's because I already have confirmed with my good friend Jen from Predominantly Paleo that she's going to come on and be a guest for several episodes and mold will be one of them. She has personal experience and um, incredible knowledge on that topic. I've also confirmed with Danielle Walker, um, Haley from Primal Palette. I also have people from outside the community that I'd love for you to meet um, and to continue conversations of this broad scope of topics that we originally changed the whole view to be because we wanted to talk about well-being inside and out um, from that broad perspective. So um, things like trying to find, and I've already confirmed with a few experts in terms of, you know, fat phobia. I'm, I'm doing a, I'm participating in a documentary with someone, um, who is, um, focused on a fat camp that I went to when I was younger. And so I've asked her to come on. She's got incredible knowledge, um, here on the show to talk about some of that stuff. So we've got a lot in the future, including, you know, continuing efforts to always bring a science-based, research-based mindset to everything that we talk about here on the show. None of that will ever change because that's just inherent to who we are. And I have confirmed a guest that our listeners might be familiar with. I don't know um, if you've heard of her, Sarah, but um, Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, have you, you've, You've heard of her, I think. The name's familiar for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So she's going to be coming on um, sometimes to talk about things too. But what's great about that is that you don't, you're not committed to uh, days of research and, um, you know, long recording sessions because you get to just pop in when you want to, when it's fun for you. And um, our listeners will get the benefit of your contagious joy and Canadianisms. I also want to assure our listeners, because I know it's like the first question that everybody wonders is Stacey and I are still friends. Like this is, this has everything (laughs) to do with legit, you know, me needing to, to put all of this energy and focus into, into Nutrivore now. And that being, um, you know, me realizing over the last few months that, that, that really needs to be my priority now. And that, that means, that um, I, you know, that I have to make some sacrifices in order in order for that to happen, and this unfortunately uh, is one of those. But it has nothing to do with 
anything else other than that. So Stacy and I are fine. We will still have to, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll still be texting each other memes all the time. Um, and oh, I I'm am... still going to send you questions. I'm just <laughs> expecting you, instead of making a show out of it, you'll have to do the work and send yeah. it to me via text. <laughs> <laughs> that will still happen. That'll, that's, that's totally fine. Um, and I am really looking forward to being able to come back as a guest host. And, you know, it's like, uh, I guess when you're a kid and you, you move away off to college and then you get to go home and visit, visit your home for, for school breaks and holidays. Um, so I'm really looking forward to coming back and I'm so excited to be able to see, you know, the evolution of this podcast because there's an amazing opportunity to be able to bring on so many experts and actually like diversify the voices on this podcast and listeners I think you're going to love it I think it's going to be amazing I'm looking forward to being one voice of many as an expert to contribute to an even broader conversation and I think I I'm really just I'm really excited to see where this podcast goes because I also feel in a lot of ways it's like uh, instead of being the college student who gets to come home uh, for visits, it's also like watching the co- the student go off to college, right? Like it's watching watching the 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 baby podcast that that I I helped grow, then like get to to mature into the like adult podcast. I I don't know this this analogy geriatric is for me. podcast. Yes, maybe <laughs> maybe maybe given given almost a decade of podcasting, but um, well now I'll have one more listener. That's it. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I do want to assure our listeners that, um, you know, it's, it's bittersweet. Um, but it is, it is something that, um, Stacy has been incredibly supportive of and, uh, we will have our episode 500 will be a more detailed what's next and a, a lovely reflection of, um, the last, 500 episodes. And we do have a Patreon a live show and Q&A coming up for all of our Patreon fam. That will also be a goodbye uh, for me, or at least a, a goodbye to seeing you every week. And, uh, and I'll, I'll see you less frequently after that. Yes. Um, so if so you're not part of our Patreon fam, like come on over. There is so much content over there. We've we've been doing a bonus add-on show every single week for I have lost track of how much time, but many. Time. Yeah, like if you're like, oh, but I need more Sarah. There's go. There's join so Patreon much. And there's to so much those. me over there. But yeah. also, so our Patreon fam, um, we asked them, we polled them. We, we were being a little sneaky, but we we polled them what future shows would you like to see? Because we wanted to make sure that before Sarah um, departed, that we could do the deep dives on the topics that were really passionate to you. And that's why we did the microwave and EMF show. It's why we did environmental allergies today. And then next week is also the most requested topic before we then do our live final reflection back and what's next for 500 during if you would like to join for that show you're going to need to be part of the patreon community to get the link and the info but then we'll also have a Q&A after that so um, it's a great opportunity to come give Sarah that virtual hug and high five and um, 
then after that, I've got to figure it out on my own. <laughs> no, I, 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 I have many plans and I have many confirmations with people who I'm excited to introduce our listeners to. Well, uh, I think that wraps up this episode on environmental allergies, chemical sensitivities, and a very large announcement. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you over on Patreon, where we will share what we really felt about this episode. And in the meantime, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind the scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.